And we're back with another episode of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here with the Matrix himself, Mark Rosano. Mark, it's good to have you on, buddy. How are you doing? Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. No, good. You know, just, I actually got some sleep last night, which was nice because the girls are, are away at their in, at my in-laws. So uh, it's always always a nice little break, you know, get a little bit of sleep and then uh, they come back tomorrow. There you go. I got four. I know how, I know how that goes. Um, so you've been on... I think you're probably the most recurring guest we've had. You and Anas. Um, this is your fourth appearance, uh, but I've got to ask. Uh, we, ne- this time next week, I think exactly almost, uh, I'll be recording with the one, the only Tiger King star herself, Carol Baskin. Um, so between now and next time, you know, the, the, the dynamics of the show will change. Um, and so, do you feel pressure that your performance needs to be up today? Um, are you going to break down her game film in preparation for you come back next time? It's it's a big ask. To, I mean, a lot. Of I will. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to break down the game the game film. I want to see what kind of hat she wore, what kind of outfit, to see if I need to step up my uh, my wardrobe game because you know I, I'm obviously always going with the Under Armour, so I might I might need to shake it up. <laughs> I mean, you're in a jacket. I, I I feel like I need. I'm gonna have to start dressing up in suits here. Hey, listen. Uh, I will say this because I doubt he's listening. Uh, one of my guests comes on. And um, I was getting ready to go out of town. And so I had a hat on, T-shirt, which is what I wear on most days anyways. But um, I was definitely wearing it because I was about to be in the truck for six and a half hours with nothing to do. And he comes on. We're in the back room. He goes, glad to see we, we dressed up today. <laughs> <laughs> he had the tie on the six and I was like, oh, oh yeah. okay. <laughs> it's a podcast, bro. It's a podcast. It's a, yep. It's a podcast. So um, uh, that's that's the beauty of these things is that they are uh, a little bit more laid back. And it's an audio format. It's an audio format. We do put them out on YouTube for those of you who do listen along, but it's mainly an audio format. Okay. Mark, um, the bad part about this interview is there's not a lot going on in the world, so I don't know what to talk about. Um, <laughs> I know. Everything's – I mean, geopolitically speaking, everything is so quiet. I mean, who knew? It's so calm. It's so peaceful right now in the world. The economy is going great. Kamala Harris is traveling the world. Um, so let's, I guess let's talk about the U.S. economy because there's not really much there, I'm sure. But what are, what's going on? You know, w- one of the things that we've been talking about and highlighting is that things are really starting to slow after that, that initial run up. You know, you had government transfers, obviously, that were coming through and that has started to finish out. Now it's some of it's being replaced with the, um, the per child payments. So you're, but you're starting to see that really take effect and and uh, really kind of create these impacts. And if you look at a lot of these leading indicators, we've already seen uh, it start to show up. Like the Richmond Fed coming out. You look at uh, Empire, Philly. You know they're all coming in well below estimates, well below. You know, and again, and I always like to comp- like preface this: it's still growth. No one is saying that we're not growing. It's just way below where estimates are way below where we were as we're now on the other side of a lot of this growth. R- and R- now, growth, oh, sorry, no. yeah, growth, when you say growth, compared to what? That's Compa- important to distinguish. So when, you, so when you're looking a lot at a lot of these indices, they can be negative. So mm-hmm. the, you, you know, like when you look at PMI, for an example, PMI, PMI 50 is nothing is happening. You know, everything is the same as it was the previous month. So if you're above 50, you're in an expansionary territory. If you're below 50, you're in a contractionary uh, uh, territory. And then when you look at a lot of these leading indicators, you can be below zero and then you're actually contracting again. So when you're looking at, at something like, you know, let's just take some of these fed numbers where you could be at, you know, 26, 30, 
and which is off of zero where they're, you're coming at nine, you know, six. Mm -hmm. And so you're still growing, but you're not growing where you, where expectations were and where you previously were the, uh, you know, if you look back over the last few months. So when you're looking at a lot of this, these data sets, they're coming in just eking out some sort of growth, but whiffing against estimates because these, these expectations for the market still remain far too elevated for what the hard data is actually putting in, which is when you start looking at the city uh, surprise index, you know, the city surprise inflation index, it just kind of shows you that everything is surprising, to, you know, on the inflation side to the upside, and then on the hard data side to the downside, which is just, uh, it's a, it's a long way of saying that the market is at all time highs, and the economic data just does not support that kind of uh, strength. Okay, so when I go around, um, we're talking offline, I was in Biloxi last weekend. Um, and I, I think the place I stayed, um, it was down in Biloxi, so there's casinos down there. I think mm -hmm. that their their buffet had shut down. And if you know casinos, the buffet's the kind of the big attraction to try to get people in. Oh, okay, the casino's a big thing, but you know the, the food <laughs> the food side. They're trying to get yeah. you those those buffets. There's a shutdown. I know that almost every little fast food joint I stopped. I went down to Houston, and then from Houston to Biloxi, every little fast food joint was hiring. Um, I've heard I, I had someone at my house um, a week or two ago, and they told me that the Waffle Houses where they're from are not working 24 hours because they don't have no staff. So it feels like if you're walking around in society that, and you're kind of being observant, you would go, hmm, something's a little bit off here. Is unemployment at max? Like, are we 100% uh, employment? Because there's a lot of people looking for, for folks out there, and they're just not there, it seems. What's going on? Well, you you have uh, we're coming up to the expiration of the extended benefits, so that's going to help drive people back into either the office or into some sort of uh, setting, like you're describing when you think about hospitality and um, and and restaurants. But when you start looking a bit more broadly, it, you know you have to consider what is what is full employment, and then at the same time, how many people are available to work. Because uh, I think one of the bigger things that we've seen because of COVID was this acceleration on retirements. So when you look at people that have now permanently left the workforce, will that remain permanent remains to be seen. But uh, some of these individuals have chosen to retire. So that takes away, I think, some of these individuals that are going to come back. And when you look at the birth rate and the amount of individuals that are available to work, it's really kind of flatlined since about 2010. And you haven't seen that that working age really increase. So the available workers is coming down mixed with retirements, mixed with uh, extended benefits. So now as these extended benefits uh, expire, you're going to see individuals that are going to come back into these jobs. They're going to have to find a way to, to replicate essentially what they what they lost out or what they were paid to stay at home with. You know, and this is where it, it's going to be interesting as well. Now, that's one side of it. But then the other side, there's the company side because mm -hmm. companies are sitting there saying, OK, well, I keep hearing there's a lot of unemployed people. There's still 10 million on the sidelines, you know, 10 to 12 million, depending on the, on the week. Mm -hmm. So why am I, I? I can be picky, too. I'm going to be the one that wants the right skill set. I'm, I'm going to want the, the person I don't need to train that much. Right. So you're seeing this, this friction because the labor is essentially saying, you're not paying me enough. And then the companies are saying, you don't have the right skill set. 
So you, you're getting this standoff between the two, and, and that's not so much a Waffle House. You know, you can train someone to work at a Waffle House, but that's more along the lines of you know when you start going into the office and you start going into some of these more you know manufacturing things that need a bit more skills that you maybe uh, you know Project have to managers, learn. Junior level right. engineers, uh, you know, production people, stuff like that. That 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 they're not. It's not an entry level job, but it's also not top of the food chain. Exactly. And that's where you're seeing this, this bifurcation in the market where, you know, when you look at the small business, like the NFSIB puts out and you look at what they're saying and they're essentially saying that they can't find workers and, and it's, can they not find them or do, are they just not willing to hire who's coming through the door? And I think it's a mixture of both. Okay. So let me ask you this, what percentage, and this is an unknown, I assume, of course, you know, everything so <laughs> you might know. I um, pretend. You pretend. Hey, it works for me. What percentage of people during COVID um, either took the early retirement, not because they wanted to retire, but or they got laid off, or they got let go, or they you know whatever, um, and all th those groups of people we, we just talked about, and they decided to work for themselves, whether that's driving an Uber, working on Fiverr, or you know uh, you know consulting or, or whatever, mm -hmm. and so they're not going to be back in the workforce as they historically have because they figured out a way to make money without having to go to the big corporate office anymore. Do any read on what percentage of the workforce that's going to be or how much that's changed? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's always been amazing about Americans is our our willingness to innovate and and create and tinker in a garage. And that that you know, when you look at the new, you know, LLCs that were started, patents that were filed, you can get an idea that the same thing happened again and and that we we did see a big uptick in LLCs being formed, uh, you know, more on the partnership side. And when you look at why an individual would do that and why a company would be okay with it. So if you're, if you say you work for IBM, you know, you took a package to retire and you, you take that package, you go and you're like, you know what? I, I still have something left in the tank. I don't really want to work five days a week. I'm okay working three days a week. Well, they'll start up an LLC and then they'll become a consultant. And the reason why they would do it, it brings in cash. You know, it's and then that you can do be a 1099 instead of a W-2 when and for those that don't know what what that's referring to is when you're thinking about taxes, when when you work for a company and you're W-2, there's taxes that are going to be attached to you. There's going to be, you know, they they might have a, a benefits package, so they're going to have to pay for some of your health care. They're going to have to pay for dental vision, where if you're a 1099 consultant, that's on you. So they don't, they are, are, they don't have to pay unemployment benefits. You know, they don't have to worry about your benefits package. So there's a certain amount of, let's just say, shifting the burden of this, you know, filing taxes, uh, benefits onto these individuals. And I think that's where you're starting to see some of that come back up. How much of it, you know, lasts is always going to be a, another question. But when you look at what has been filed and what patents have been filed, there has been an uptick. You know, how much, at what percentage, you know, I can, you know, based on the data that's come out, there's been a, like almost a 27, 30% increase in the amount of LLCs filed. And that's something that is, that we normally see during downturns, during these lock, the, uh, when people are, are locked in place, you know, the difference, the difference now going forward to companies that are struggling with, you know, do I really need this? The, if I own five floors, do I really need the fifth? You know, if I own this building, do I really need to own this building? And that's when we're starting to see commercial real estate come back into question because, 
can I just have a, a few uh, consultants that I've now outsourced? You know, do I need do I need uh, five floors worth of individuals here, or do I need three? And that's where you're starting to. Uh, that's how that kind of continues to branch down into even the commercial real estate sector. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, you know, one of the things that I've been doing um, is you know, some advisory work, and it works out pretty well for the customer because they don't have to hire a full time person. Right. They can pay me a reduced, much reduced rate on a retainer, mm -hmm. uh, a commission on the back end. Um, and, it, you know, the risk is pretty low. The exposure is pretty low. So new creative things are are out there. And I think that, you know, in 2018, 2019, you could have struck some of these deals. They're harder to find. But right now you're going, OK, do we really need to bring in someone for $150,000, $200,000, whatever it is? I don't know, $120,000. Pay them a commission, pay them insurance, pay them all this stuff. Or can we work out these deals with people um and maybe get a better roi and just have a smaller workforce i think you've seen that through all levels right that that um whether it's commercial real estate whether it's um you know small businesses or even bigger businesses well and, and you're seeing where a lot of these individuals are, are essentially leaving the company and then getting hired back to the same company just under a, a an llc consulting agreement so they they essentially offloaded a lot of this risk that they no longer need. And they, you know, maybe your job really wasn't a five day a week job. Maybe it was right. three days a week. You know, maybe it was, you know, working f maybe instead of, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week, it's really five hours a day, five days a week. And, and then you start using your time differently. And, and it, it's almost like this, this new growth of the gig economy mm -hmm. that's now been expanded where the gig economy I'm referring to is, you know, you, you need something, you need blinds installed. So you go hire someone on, on different apps, you know, something like that is getting a little bit bigger, you know, and, and it, and it always does. And then it starts to shrink back down because, you know, somebody comes in and like, wow, this person's really smart. I don't want anyone else to have their expertise. I'm going to hire them. So then I have them and they're in under my umbrella and I don't have to worry about them taking information or things that they're sharing with me and sharing it with my competitors. So that's it's just going to be a matter of how how long does that last, and then when does that start to shift back? No, that's a great point. What you'll see is is that um, um, on, on the vendor side, not even on the employee side, that companies will they'll have you know a hundred vendors they're using to build a project, and they'll say, you know what, let's bring in you know fifty percent of those vendors in house, and so then they'll bring them in house, and so then they'll say, oh, that's too expensive, let's put them back out in vendors. So you're, you're seeing the same thing here, I think, yeah. with employment, and so um, but the only thing I would push back on uh, that's a little bit different this time is that you you have a situation now where companies um, and more and more companies will move towards mandatory vaccinations. Um, they might make you wear a mask all the time. Um, some of these requirements that have changed will make people go, mm, I'm not sure if I want to be in the corporate environment as much. Whereas when we're talking about returning to the new normal, it was, um, okay, um, well, do you want to go back to the office? Well, now going back to the office might mean you got to get, get a shot. You might got to wear a mask. You might got social distance or, you know, or whatever it might be. So I think there's some other things at play here from the workforce side as well. I, I agree. And, and people have now gotten used to working from home or working with a, a bit more flexibility. And now it's becoming a must, not a nice to have. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that now where people, and, and, and based on the fact that there's these jobs available, people are essentially saying, look, if you're not going to allow me to stay working from home because I am uncomfortable or I, I, I like not having an hour commute each way, if you're not going to allow me to maintain some of that flexibility, I'm just going to go find another job and find someone who will. So you're starting to see that come back into play where, 
you know, work-life balance is always that, that question that you ask in the interview or, or something that is talked about during the interview process. But now it's not just, well, this is what you could have if you come here. It's like, no, this is what I must have. Mm -hmm. If you want me, this is what I must have. I must have Mondays and Wednesdays at home. I, I have to have Thursdays and Fridays at home. Like those are things that are getting baked into the market more and more on a, on a growing level. And, and it's, it's a mix because there, you'll talk to some people and they'll say productivity's down. It's terrible. It's, it's what hurting culture, which is why I think you're start, you're going to see the adoption of a flex schedule become more prominent versus a straight work from home. And it's just going to be a matter of where does that balance out over time? But I do think that there is going to be a marked shift in the way work is done, you know, who, who has that ownership. And then again, it's coming back to companies, you know, what is the biggest cost for companies? It's, it's real estate and labor. Mm -hmm. So if you can find ways to reduce both of those, uh, both of those entities, I mean, you're going to do everything you can to take, to change those cost centers. Well, I think the other thing to consider is if you're on the employee side, you probably need to realize, um, this is not for every employee, but a lot of employees were getting carried a lot of hours at jobs, you know, because they were just a 40 hour week employee, right? Mm -hmm. If you really said, how much work do you really have to do in a week? It's not 40 hours. You know, there are some jobs that's the case, some jobs it's more obviously, but there's plenty of jobs out there that really weren't 40 hour week jobs, but to get, the, you know, you wanted benefits and this, that, and the other, you, your 40 hour week job. So if your company, to your point, well, why not bring in more contractors who can work right. 30 hours, 20 hours, and you don't have to do these extra costs. And on the flip side, if you're an employee and your job was really only 20 hours, but you're like, okay, I could work two 20-hour jobs at different rates, right? So, I could, or, or three 20-hour jobs because now there's no um, moonlight clause. So, I think both sides, if they look at it for the right opportunity, there's a this could be really be really beneficial because now if you're if you're an employee, you could say, you know what, I'm an independent contractor, and I'm gonna go out and get four or five different clients because my task is not trade secrets or anything like this, and I can do it for four or five companies, make more money, work my own schedule, work at home. Um, and if you're the company, to your point, I would promote this as well. You can't do it for everyone, but promote this as this is good for the employees. Hey, listen, if you want to take this route, we encourage you to go work for three or four companies. Be your own boss. Make your own uh, hours. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that'll catch on, but I think there's that's the opportunity here. Well, it, it's funny, you know. I I didn't I didn't actually didn't notice the billboard on the way home yesterday, but when I was coming back from my in laws in in Rhode Island, you know, uh, as you enter New York, there's a big billboard essentially pitching, you know, why live in a closet when you can live in a mansion? And it's all about moving to Ohio mm -hmm. from New York for work from home. And, and it, and that's when you're, you're starting to see these shifts in, you know, do I need to be in a tiny bedroom, uh, one right. bedroom, $4,000 a month apartment, or can I live, you know, with a great mortgage now New Yorkers moving out because they, there's a different value on money when you go to Ohio or some of these other areas that that have a lot of uh, space. You know, you're that's when you start seeing the, these bidding wars. But it's still cheaper on a on a mortgage basis to uh, to buy some of these areas. And and it's just again that better work work life balance and a bit happier existence, if you will. Okay, let's talk about a little bit of oil prices. Um, they are right now at the time of this recording. $67.58 WTI, $70.95 Brent. That's the old stuff. You've got the actual live price on your little terminal over there, but that's close <laughs> enough for government work. Yep. Um, what's, your, what's your read on prices right now? So one of the things that I, I was saying that I, I, you know, when we were talking, uh, I think it was the, we had a conversation on, 
you know, that July 5th, I was like, look, oil prices are stupid here. This makes no sense. There's a lot of downside risk. And, um, and then, you know, my, my near term target was actually got into just below 65. So we went right through that. And then my expectation was to see a bounce. So I, I think we're going to continue to see a bit of a rally here to about 68. You have a lot of things coming your way. You have the inflation trade is back the or reflation trade. You have, you know, all of these, these narratives getting thrown around, you know, people said that the, the down move was because of Delta. So then Delta starting to peak. So then you have a lot of narratives going through. And then the biggest one is OPEC where what is OPEC going to do? Are they going to limit the cuts? Are they going to slow down? Are they going to pause or is it going to be business as usual? And my expectation is business as usual. You know, I, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, uncertainty, but at the same time, they want to take their market share. You know, the prices still remain robust even after a correction of, you know, let's call it eight dollars, and they're they're looking to capitalize, and, and I don't see that stopping. Now, you if one of the things that we've talked about is could they bring back the cuts, and I don't think there is the political will within OPEC to reinstitute cuts. I, I think they could make a negotiation to pause them, but I don't think you would ever see them reinstitute a, um, you know, a, a, the broad based cuts that we have seen. With the price where it's at, um, I, I was talking about this yesterday. It's, it's fine for us producers. It's not like it's, it's, you know, so 65 to 72 or, or whatever, 75, but you know, it's dropped, but, it's not in the, in the danger zone yet. So the danger zone for me is you get sub 55. I think producers start kind of looking like, Oh, okay. We're, yeah. we're a little concerned. Uh, and then you get to 50. So as long as, as long as we stay in this range, we should be okay. But production, I know we hit over 500 rigs, but production really isn't blowing through the roof in the U S. Um, is it, is it, what's the, what's going on here? Is it, is it money? Is it drilling schedules? Is it, is it creeping up at the right pace? I know you get the, uh, the frack spread that you guys do. What, what's, what's kind of your read on, on, on drilling? So w one of the things that we had said back in December was that we were, we had a target of about 11.3 to 11.5 million barrel a day exit rate. And we shifted that in March, just based on the speed in which these frack spreads really came back to about 11.5 to 11.7 and really much closer to 11.6 exit rate. And the reason why is, you know, we just, we don't have the same type of will to get back to 13 million. And let's be fair, we shouldn't, you know, we overshot where demand was for us crude, which is light, which is sweet. And, but it has some, some issues in terms of a bit acidic, uh, paraffins, which is just the, you know, waxy, uh, uh, you know, waxy pieces within the oil itself. That just means that on the refining side, pet chem side, they have to do remediation to account for the heavy metals, the, the acidic cuts and the, um, and the wax. So we outpaced not only domestic demand, but also international demand. So going through 2018 into 2019 and even the first quarter of 2020, we were adding drilled but uncompleted wells at a massive clip, uh, which would just, just because we expected to get to 15 million barrels a day. And then obviously COVID happened, but, and, and I say this on a regular basis, I was bearish in 2019 because we were already seeing slowing. We were already seeing pressure points. You know, as of July of 19, you started to see the cracks in, on the wall. So I, I, when you look at COVID, that just accelerated things. So now we get to the other side of it. 
and companies are sitting there saying, okay, well, why am I going to run back up, you know, increase all these costs, dr you know, drill wells so far ahead? Well, why? Like, let's, let's get back to pace. Let's get back to a comfortable setting. And I think that's where we sit. So I actually just um, uh, published another article that just came out today on AOGR. And when it, it's just looking at rigs versus frack spreads. And, and our view was that Q3 was going to see an acceleration of rig counts versus spread counts. And it's not that spreads or, you know, frack spreads were going to go down. It's just that rigs were going to run ahead of them to stem the decline of, of ducks, to start to kind of get into a balancing act. And you're going to see, you know, rigs get to, you know, over six uh, to about 650 on an exit rate. And you're going to get frack spreads to about 275. And I don't see movement too far above that. Like there's, I don't think there's any real will at this point to get past that. You know, could we get to 12 point, you know, 12 million to 12.3 million barrels a day in 2022? Sure. Then that's going to be based on price. That's going to be based on some of this demand, but I just don't think there's the, the will or the necessity to see 15 million barrels a day coming out of the U.S. with a large part of that having to be taken down by the international market because our refiners are built to take heavy, heavy sour. Like we're built to take this stuff from Venezuela, Mexico, uh, you know, the Middle East, because that's where the cost, the, the benefit, the cost benefit was where you would buy the stuff that nobody wanted and turn it into great products, but you needed a complex refiner. You needed a lot of uh, processes to make sure that you could utilize that and turn it into something useful. So we just, we, we essentially saturated the world and the, and the U S with light sweet with a lot of that not being able to go into our refiners and having to get exported. Now, since then they have developed, or I should say built out a bit more on the lighter end where there would be hydro skimming, more alkylation units, more reformate units to try to maximize the usage, but there's only so much you can do before it's just, you're, you're running inefficiently. So there's, we're always going to be beholden to what can the international world take down. And we've already seen them say it's too much. We're almost towards the end of towards the end of uh, driving season here. Um, how has gasoline demand been in the U.S.? Uh, gasoline demand. Not, now I'm going to tout myself, and and I know that that's probably bad form, but it's it did exactly what I said it was going to do in March, where you were going to see a seasonal increase, which along seasonal lines, but you, we were never going to get back to where we were from 16 to 19. And it's just because you, uh, everything we just talked about working from home, you know, people still a little skittish about, about COVID. And, and the one thing that I've, I've always said, you don't need the government to mandate things. Could the consumer will naturally take their own steps to protect. And, you know, maybe instead of going to target five times, you went two times, you know, instead of going, you know, two times this week, you're going to skip this week. You're going to see how things shake out. You're going to utilize, hey, I can use Target online. I, I, can, I, can, I can change my buying habits and minimize risk to myself and my family. And that's what we've seen. And that's what we've continued to see because there's still this uncertainty of, well, what is Delta? What is Lambda? You know, what, what other Greek alphabet we uh, letter we want to use? So when you start seeing this, and, and then you have people that like working from home and, and like not being in the office, and those are the types of shifts. So our view was weekday activity was going to be 15 to 20% below normal, 
and weekend activity was going to be five to 7% above normal where people were going to do less during the week, you know, just because they're, they're not driving to work. They're not, you know, going away as much and they're going to do more on the weekends, parks, you know, going outside, traveling to see family that they haven't seen in 14 months. So that it was going to be this, 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 this waiting. And, and you saw that And the same thing where you had a seasonal increase, but it just never got to where it, we have been. And then you, if you look at TSA data, departures data, the same thing played out where you had a seasonal increase, but it was always 500 to 750,000 below 2019 levels. And now you're starting to see it come back down with seasonal. And, and, and I think, I don't know why, but apparently if you haven't had a seasonal impact in a year, people forget that you can look over the last 50 years and seasonality matters. You know, somebody was telling me today that, you know, the, uh, not today, uh, was it two weeks ago that school buses are going to be all the difference in the fall. It's like, so we haven't had school buses in all of the other years. So school buses are just a brand new thing that's going to absorb all of this. I was like, come on guys, like just, just seasonality, just look at this, you know, season by season, you know, like when, when people talk about, Oh, uh, you know, demand in July is the big, is the highest it's been since COVID started. It's like, so we're going to compare July to March. That's, that's where we are now. It's like, okay, you know, whatever keeps the narrative alive. Well, and, okay. So for, for folks who maybe aren't familiar with all these terms, let's, let's unpack this. When you're saying seasonality, um, what you're saying is that certain portions of the year, mm -hmm. historically, we see that demand is here compared to where it was the previous season. So it might go up or down depending on what's going on. So right. the season we're about to go into, gasoline demand, seasonally speaking, will go down regardless of what's going on in the world. That's just Correct. how it works. Now, uh, diesel demand, theoretically, I don't know the, the answer to this question, diesel demand theoretically could go up because of the school buses, right? Well, it, it's it's I, just... Curious, but, it, but, but overall, that wouldn't yeah. fix the seasonality of the gasoline demand problem. Correct. Well, and if you look at just what has happened when, when we turn back to the seasonality side, you know, you think about what you do normally. What, what, do you drive more in July or do you drive more in November? Right. And that's just when you're thinking, you can't compare the two. You have to compare all of the Julys together, all of the August together. And then you turn to the fall and what is fall? It's, it's school. You know, people go back to school. You know, you can't take your kid out of school, you know, and go to Disney World or, you know, you can, but you might get in trouble. You know, you, you look at some of these things where you know, the vacations dip, you know, you start to get into more of a routine again. And that's some of the difference. You know, one of the things that we also did say, and this was actually back in 20, uh, in, in 2020, was that what you were going to get a very strong diesel response. And, and it was just because the the supply chains were so banged up, they still remain significantly impacted that you were going to have a bigger reliance on trucking, which was going to pull in more diesel. And that's continued to be the case. So diesel's always been on the on you know the bright spot if you look at the, you know the main driving or transportation fuels, which is gasoline, distillate, jet fuel, kerosene, and resid or residual fuels, which you know when you look to shipping. So when you're looking at these transportation fuels, diesel's always been the bright spot. It's the other areas that you saw a lot of weakness, and we've continued to see not so much extensive weakness, but just not back to where. I think the market was expecting as we entered this, this, you know, pent up demand summer driving season. So to go back to your comment about um, gasoline demand is the highest in July since it's been since COVID started. A, a better way to frame that would be as gasoline demand 
is the highest. And this, I'm just making up a, a number here. Mm -hmm. Gasoline demand theoretically is as high as it was in 2019, July 2019. That would have been a better yes. way to, to measure that. Or Correct. gasoline demand is you know 67% higher year over year, but it's still 20% lower than 2019, right? So then then Correct. you're fra you're framing it in a, in a way that's it's relative to what it should be, and it actually makes sense. Where you're if you're saying um, in, in the way that it's proposed that you said, you'd say, well, it's highest in since COVID started March of 2019, which actually means July is normally 30% higher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to really unpack yeah. all of that other stuff. You could, but that's, but that's not what's being presented. Correct. And, and that's why it's always like, and one of the things we said was, look, 2020 was a unique time. It, it will never be as bad as 2020, but where are we in comparison to 2016 to 2019 in that time frame? Because when you go through, you know, we've we've added shockingly, I know, we've added miles to the road essentially every year going back to, you know, the 1990s. So it's 16 should be and then things have started to level off and we're not adding as many miles just because we, we've started to saturate the market with cars and, and just the amount that our infrastructure can handle. So you, you went, uh, that's why I compare it to what were we in 16, 17, 18, and 19 versus today, because that's going to give you a better bellwether of how, how close to normal are we? It's interesting when you talk about adding miles, I could see the case that Uber could add a lot of miles or it could also take away a lot of miles because, you know, someone who, if you're in a big city and you had a car, you go, okay, I'm not getting a car now. I'm just going to Uber everywhere because it's cheaper and it's more effective. Yeah. And so I took away a bunch of miles. On the flip side, someone who who's like the taxi system sucks, it's a pain in the butt, but now I can Uber. It's a lot more effective. Or if you're, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old uh, getting an Uber, I could see that as well. So ha has Uber played any role? Do you know about the miles? Because I could kind of see it having impact on both sides. It's it's actually had it's almost like a negating factor because you had people, you know, kids that that would have gotten cars that didn't want cars parents that no longer had to drive their kids because they could uber everywhere and but it, it, it then if you look at cities they actually replaced a lot of the taxi side and if you if for anybody who's actually walked through new york can attest to the fact that they've actually created way more problems than they've than they fixed because there were so many ubers on the road and lifts and you know what other companies are out there that they've they've gunked up the system. So now you have so much gridlock, you have so many issues that you you just created a more of a traffic problem, which and people have opted not to. So now you have a situation coming you know, coming out of COVID with a lot of surge pricing, which has kept people from really kind of getting back into the Uber mode. So I would say that right now Uber is not uh, taking miles away as they have. But as things start to normalize a bit more, you'll see that adjust. But there was there was that mixing impact where I would say it was kind of negated in general in terms of what was added and what was taken away. Okay. Uh, one more question on oil demand, and then we'll uh, move or ask two more questions. Um, first off, we are at the end of summer driving season, so we should expect demand to drop somewhat. Um, how much, when you look around globally, um, you have summer driving season coming to an end. You have you know, lockdowns in Australia, New Zealand. Um, you have things like uh, protests going on in the world. Um, but Goldman, I think, still is sitting on the $80 number. Uh, <laughs> maybe that was your answer. <laughs> yeah. You know where I'm going. Yep. Take it from there. That's, that's question one, and then I'll get to question two. Go ahead. 
so the the problem is, and for some reason, there's a view that Asia doesn't matter to the energy markets, and and I don't know where that came from outside of you know anything to keep the narrative going. You know, the problem is inflation hits every country differently, and every country in different ways that can be more impactful, less impactful in general. So when you look at the inflation situation, uh, the uh, the uncertainty and the restrictions that have been put in place in other areas, I think there's there is a prolonged impact, especially when you turn to Asia. You know, it, and things in the U.S. have gotten better, and we haven't seen the same type of surge because we we do have vaccinations, we have do have people that have you know maybe are having breakthrough uh, covid cases but they're very they're much less severe and when you start going abroad and you look at the shortages you you look at the inflation you look at a lot of these problems that is going to continue to impact a lot of these demand numbers because they've they they kept purchasing crude as if things were going to be normal and then they were very far from normal so you have India that it came way down in terms of their imports in July. You had China doing the same thing. And not to get too technical, but there's you know, the, there's the paper market and then there's the physical market. And when you look at the paper market, the paper market, which is the futures, you can say, okay, well, future prices is, is this, you know, that's looking forward. But then when you look at the physical market and you look at the significant discounts against benchmarks, against differentials, you're like, okay, well, that's not a lot of strength. And, and ESPO is one of the ones that comes out of Russia and goes into the, uh, you know, in, in Northern Asia. And typically China pulls down a lot of that uh, crude and, and it's actually trading at a five month low, bringing us back to March levels. Then you look at West Africa, which is Nigeria, Angola, Congo, that they've been struggling to sell their crude. So you, you, you get these two different markets where the futures market is telling you, the world is fine. They can't, there's not enough oil in the world. And then the physical market where countries are essentially begging you to take their stuff so that they can just move it into the world. And I think that there's that debt, that difference of when do the fundamentals catch up with the futures market or when does the futures market catch up with the fundamentals? And that's where you keep going back and forth. And, uh, you know, as we've seen before, people, can, things can stay irrational longer <laughs> than you can stay solvent. So you just have to be nimble. Well, I'm about to say, if if we're, if 2020 taught us anything, it, it's that very lesson right there. Right? <laughs> 2020, uh, I will never forget the days where you'd turn on CNBC or uh, you know Fox Business, and, it, and they'd have all their screens up. It'd be green in the banner across the bottom. Unemployment hits 100 million people, or whatever it was. And you're just like, <laughs> what, guys? Yes, I don't yeah. know who's producing this show, but stop, please stop. Please. It's something. It's something. That's <laughs> my, well, it's just something. I don't know what it is, but it's something. It's something. All right. Uh, the second question, and this is this is a pretty serious one, is how much more about oil and gas do you know than Big Orn? <laughs> so I, I will say that I have learned a lot from him over the years, and we look at I look at the market at, from a much broader perspective because he is he's very much focused on the physical. Oh yeah, and the downstream. So I rely on him a significant amount on what is happening in the physical market. What is that telling us? And then I do more with the macroeconomics of where is this going to go from here? When we start looking at okay, well, India's you know consumer um, 
cons uh, consumer sentiment is at a, uh, the lowest it's been in 10 years. And then I go back to where things were in 10 years ago to understand, you know, what is that, what are the implications? So we, I, I look at things from uh, just longer periods and he's very much focused within the physical market and the uh, refining side. Yeah. We, for listeners at home, we retook that 10 times. Um, Mark started out by saying so much more. I can't even explain how long you got. And it was like a 30 minute deal. He really was trying big ore. And it took like 10 times for him to condense it down into that nice polit politically correct answer. Um, yeah, that, that was, that was nice of you. Um, I try, I try. He's a good I, friend. I kept the real recordings of what you said. So we'll, we'll play those later, later date. <laughs> so, um, no, I had to get my big orange shot in since you're on here. All right, uh, we've got about oh, 15, 18 minutes. Let's just kind of go through a little bit more rapid fire here. Um, China, are they invading Taiwan? They are not invading Taiwan in the near term. Uh, I think that they're using the situation in Afghanistan, which was a fantastic marketing opportunity for them, to take what is happening there and trying to project what does that mean for Taiwan? Is this really who you want to trust? I think the bigger issue that, uh, you know, and, and it, not to say that Afghanistan isn't important because it is, but when you look at Taiwan and you look at their, their, their relevance to our supply chain for everything from chips to servers, to chips that go into our missile systems and our, you know, military systems, you know, those, those things make Taiwan very important for our structure, for our IP you know, how many things are, are within Taiwan that we don't want China to have our, their hands on? You know, there's there's a lot of reasons why it is going to be very different. So even though China is trying to play up, look at who you're relying on. These are the guys that will leave you high and dry. Anybody who knows supply chains, and and let's be fair, when, when you leave the U.S., and because and Americans tend to be a bit myopic and think they're the center of the universe, a lot of these other countries don't, and they realize that you look, you can say what you want, but I know, I know the U S needs us more than we, maybe even more than we need them. And, and I think that that is something that is going to keep G um, skittish in terms of making any kind of uh, aggressive moves against Taiwan. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think is that whatever the U S sentiment is towards China, uh, the, the resolve from Taiwan's perspective <laughs> Yes, <laughs> they're pretty hard. So, well, and and, pretty, and the thing is, they have a lot of assets, and you have to consider Taiwan's uh, perspective, right? So they, they, it's it's a it parts of the country have uh, mountains within it. Uh, they they have a very steep cliffs. So there's only very specific areas that you can land. And and don't get me wrong, if anybody can mount a an overwhelming force, it would be China. But you still have to cross the water. And the U.S. gave them harpoon missiles. And for those that don't know, harpoon missiles are very, very accurate and make a very large explosion that take out things within the vicinity of it. So there's they are a hardened uh, area that would be very difficult to take. And and for years, their their whole structure has been survive an invasion for two weeks because that's how long it would take the U.S. to mount a response. And that that time period has shortened. And if you look at just where we have like the USS Ronald Reagan, where we keep a lot of these floating assets, it's within striking distance where it would not be a two-week turnaround period, but something measured in, you know, in days. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is that um, when, you, when you talk about all that, essentially you're saying, 
does China want a hot war with the U.S.? And I don't really think that's what they want. I think that they're, um, when you look at how our economies are, are just commingled, I, I just don't think that's what where they're at. Um, and if you go back and read, uh, have you read Peter Martin's China's Civilian Army yet? I, I haven't. So he talks about Mao and how Mao would use Taiwan for this exact purpose, which he would start, you know, um, you know, uh, launching, you know, attacks or, or talk about attacks on Taiwan. And it was really just to distract the public from, you know, they're starving to death. <laughs> so, right. And so you have to consider that China is a propaganda machine. I mm -hmm. mean, they make our administrations look like, you know, fools when it comes to propaganda. Uh, and so it's hard to always read what their true motivation is. And I think from the Western perspective, we look at them like, oh my gosh, they're they're flying a they're flying a jet over there. They're ready to go to war, baby. Let's go get them. And they're like, they're like, bro, come on. So, yeah, it, it's the concern is always what what is going to drive action, and what drives action is the lack of basic necessities. So if you start looking at you know the the shortage of food, shortage of water, that's when you'll see an action drive forward and, and to try to distract people from that, as you said with Mao and the quote unquote great leap forward, which killed 10 million people, you know, if that starts to come back out, you know, now the, the problem is, or the benefit for China is they are in a very different place to try to rectify that than they have been in previous years. So I, that's when you start looking at India, you know, what is happening along that border? You know, where are they again along the Dokkan Plateau? Because if you wanted to think about China wanting to drive south from the Dokkan Plateau, you would pick up a lot of access to farmland, a lot of access to fertilizers, which they already have the BRI or the Belt and Road Initiative in Bangladesh, and they just signed a new one with Sri Lanka, which essentially puts them in a, in a very good place to to have uh, assets within the Bay of Bengal. So then you start to look at strategically, how can they work this? And Taiwan, while makes makes them look bad because Taiwan's economy has far surpassed, surpassed China on, on different levels, you know, if you look at you know, GDP per capita, you know, what is the income per, per civilian? That's when you start to see some of these differences on, you know, capitalism versus a more communist bent. So that's that's where it could be kind of like a show of force, like this is what we can do. But realistically, they need food and water, and how do you get that? And it's and it, Taiwan is useless for when it comes to that. I mean, they're they're in their own drought, so right. you really need to come further south. And that's when I look at how would how would they get over the Himalayas? You know, what is strategically important for them? How how have they built helipads and and uh, and railroads and ways to get around the Strait of Malacca, which then leads into why they've built, um, you know, facilities within Taj, um, uh, ta uh, in the in the stands in terms of uh, Tajikistan and um, and the areas around Afghanistan in terms of ways to get crude through the uh, the you know because the Himalayas are, are tall, you know, so you have to you have to take specific routes to try to go through some of the planes to get crude from Iran up or or ways to to mitigate and try to create a you know, let's just say a supply chain that avoids the Strait of Malacca, which the U.S. and, and allies practices closing on a regular basis because you can't hide a submarine. You know, it's so shallow, submarines have to come to the surface. So there's a lot of reasons why strategically coming down through uh, or, you know, around the Himalayas makes more sense than trying to do use brute force on the other side of the strait. Uh, a that was perfect. The, they're mowing my yard. I don't know if I can hear that or not. And the guy blowing was like literally blowing 
during your answer, like right there. And I was just like, please talk, Mark. Please talk, Mark. Please talk. Thank you. So you counted it perfectly. He's gone now. Um, the second thing is, and I don't know how much this enters into Xi Jinping's thought process, but let's say theoretically he was considering doing what you're saying doing. It would be extremely foolish right now, in my opinion, to l- not look around geopolitically at the COVID lockdowns and the response that you're seeing with protests and riots in the streets and think, hey, now's a good time to go invade some other country, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. and, and so if you're a military strategist, and so this is my frustration with the China talk is, oh, they're so advanced thinkers or thinking out hundreds of years and all this stuff. Well, if you're an advanced military strategist and you're like, I'm going to go and take down a country right now at the most civil unrest in the last 100 years mm-hmm. <laughs> or 80 years, it's a risky strategy. You're going to get a bunch of pissed off people wherever you find them, whether it's in Texas or New Zealand or Australia or India, because the last year and a half has sucked for most of the population. And so right. to go and invade somewhere right now, um, you better bring a big stick because you're going to find a bunch of pissed off people. And so there's there's two sides to that. So there's one where they're not going to be unified, so they won't be able to mount a response. And then on the other side is you have people that are already angry and you become the unifying force that they will rally around to then take their anger internally and project it out. So there's two different ways to think about that. Okay. That's, I agree that that is theoretically possible. The pushback I'd say is that I don't know of anyone, listen, I am a pro us china relations I, I think we should do business with china i'm a free market guy so i'm mm-hmm. not like hey we should go bomb the commies that's not what i'm saying here i can just tell you i have conversations with people around the world and i don't know but a handful of people who are like oh yeah let's just trust them blindly most people look at china like oh, man, i don't know I'm like i'm not too sure about that you know now if you if you're at the high government elite level the conversation is a little bit different. When mm-hmm. you talk people on the ground, people do business. I don't know if their reputation can garner what you're saying there. And so um, I, I don't know if they have that capacity right now. Well, they, they've ex- the problem is when you look at deal- doing deals with China, doing deals with China and when we were doing them back out of the Middle East in 2010, 2011, there was a view of that market is huge. It's fine. We'll give them what they want because we're going to make it up in numbers and volume. And none of that came to fruition. Most of these contracts are are either so far underwater, cause bankruptcies, restructuring that now people are kind of woken up to the fact of, okay, well, I agree. You have a lot of people, but not a lot of them are going to buy my stuff. So let's be very clear on what these terms are. And people have gotten smarter to ways of dealing with China, but how, you know, there's such an integral part to the supply chain that you have to have some kind of understanding of what is happening on the ground. Now we have taken action since then to, to diversify our supply chains. You know, you're starting to see some of that move, but there was an interesting chart that I had on one of my shows, just showing how much, you know, how much trade the, you know, different countries do with, with, um, China. So obviously the U.S. at 448 billion is the biggest, but you know Japan doing 112 billion. Well, how much of that 112 billion going from China to Japan is going then from Japan to the U.S.? So then you start looking at the U.S. and okay, 448 billion is direct trade, but how much of it is indirect trade? And that's when you start to see the interwoven nature of where some of these supply chains are. 
And it's just, we've never been this connected. You know, you can look at Germany in World War II and you'd say, look, we were very connected and, and we were to a point, but not in not to this level, not to this degree. And you could say, well, the economies are bigger, so economies of numbers, so everything gets bigger. But even if you adjust for that, you know, our ties into China are much bigger than most. Well, and the other thing I'll say is, is that we ran a show, episode 40, um, I don't know, 43, 44, I'll look it up, I'm talking here. And it was on the Cameroon, the Civil War going on in Cameroon, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm not really familiar with the story. I've heard a little bit about it. I wanted to talk to someone, episode 44. And so essentially this guy comes on and he says that the, the French-speaking Cameroons are waging war on the English-speaking Cameroons. And if you type in hashtag Southern Cameroons on Twitter, you will find all kinds of atrocities going on. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm taking this man at his word um, that the that the French are the aggressors here. I don't actually know because I don't know enough about what's going on. I'm not there, yada, yada. But right. it's, it's terrible what's going on. When you go back to Nazi Germany, there was no, and I say this over and over again, and I, I, know, I know we've talked about this, there is no WhatsApp picture. There are no Twitters. There are no mm -hmm. Facebooks. There, there's nothing. So the people who knew, and you hear about like like Ford going to Germany to work with them, you know, it's very much the elites were the ones doing stuff, and they all kind of knew. The person on the ground, whether they wanted to know or not, they couldn't know. And that's the fundamental difference. So when you talk about, um, you know, um, if China were to make this big, massive invasion, uh, well, this isn't 1930. We're, we're, we're only here what the AP tells us or, you know, whatever it is. People will be streaming it live on Facebook or Twitter or, or wherever. Um, and so I think that's – it's just hard for us – in 2021 to think about the implications of that. When we, when we went through last year, um, we saw the protests in the streets or January 6th or any of these things that happened, you know, everyone right then was instantly reacting to it. And we had all these emotions and reactions and reactions mm -hmm. upon reactions. Um, so I, I think we're in a different spot that makes it so much harder for those things to happen. Um, when you talk about a massive invasion, uh, moving troops onto places, uh, maybe I'm naive, but I, I just think it's just a different world. There's there's ways to which is why they want to control so much of the uh, of the uh, you know the media the 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 internet because there's ways to try to adjust that but as you said there's ways around it now it you can also use that to your benefit you know you look at ISIS you look at Al Qaeda you know they've used that significantly sure. to their benefits to to reach beyond what they you know what their capabilities are. You know, the problem that you look at when you start talking about like Cameroon of French versus English, we, we ignore in the U.S. at times the tribal backdrop. Like there is, the, you know, tribalism is, is, is very much a driving force. And if you turn to Afghanistan, you know, what are Pashtuns versus Uzbeks? What are, you know, what, where, what are the Tajiks saying? Like what are uh, Haraz saying like versus the Pashtuns or the, you know, that Northern Alliance versus the Taliban. And, and not to say that the Pashtuns are all Taliban because they're not, you know, the Taliban is radicalized Pashtuns, but you're getting an idea of the tribal backdrop, which then becomes the underarching feeling of, you know, because us in the U.S. and either and, and other places that are, are that even though we're, you know, the U.S. isn't uniform because we're made up of so many different colors and types, but we have a unifying front. And, and I think sometimes we underestimate the ability of one tribal member picking up a gun, walking across the street and killing someone different because that's just not what we think about. But that is very real, very much baked in. 
And, and, and I think th those are things that can really drive action, but that's more internal than internal. it is external. Right. Right. And, and I, I think that's where sometimes there's that confusion. But when you look at Arab Spring 2010, 2011, and then you look at 2020, 2021, you have the same price moves in food. You have an, another drought, which was actually very bad in 2010, 2011. You have tri uh, tribal anger that it has the ability to branch out. So you could see a bigger dis destabilization. I personally do not think so because I think each country, to your point, is facing their own internal battles that they're not worried about what's happening. And you're already seeing some of this anger, but you're seeing it also more in Iran and, and Southeast Asia mm -hmm. versus the Middle East. Like the Middle East is kind of, is on the other side of that. If you look at Libya, not to say Syria is calm, but it's not where it was. But then, you know, you, Leb uh, you, know, you look at Libya, but then you look at Lebanon, you look at some of these other areas that come into that MENA sector. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, there's some areas that you could start to see this again, but I just think that it'd be more localized versus some of these others where Southeast Asia, there's a bit more of a concern of, okay, well, could this go anywhere else? And I'm going to say no. You know, some will say that it, it could, but there's that this is where some of that destabilization uh, concern, because those tribes don't know borders. You know, borders, yeah. we made borders, like the English made borders. What, what these, these borders are haphazardly drawn across the map. So you have to look at, well, what is the carry through, through that tribe? You know, is there going to be a movement into some of the other stands, you know, into Pakistan, into India? And that's why India is watching this closely because they've been on the wrong side of, of different things going back to, you know, the seventies when the Russians came in and the U S armed the Taliban to, uh, to, to help defeat and kick those Soviets out. So there's always been some uncertainty in that region. Yeah, so I've said it like this. I think the map for the next hundred years will be drawn from the ground up, right? Right. And so what you're what you're referring to is these tribal disputes that don't necessarily have these arbitrary borders. Uh, what I'm what I'm pushing back against is the Treaty of Versailles, World War II, um, those type of things that redraw the map in such dramatic ways. I don't. I think we're beyond those days for where it gets the clock. We talk about next time, but for a lot of reasons. The other thing I'll say is just on Taiwan. Um, D-Day is they think of the past. The reason we watch World War II um, aircraft carrier battles and all of this stuff and, and you know the, the Normandy invasion, those will never happen again. For those to happen, you would have to disable all of the satellites or whatever, how many satellites mm -hmm. are. Um, because if you started loading up boats full of Chinese army or Marines or whatever, whatever they're called and send them to Taiwan, every satellite that we have would detect that. And right. of course, there's submarines and cruisers and destroyers. And so... This, this kind of, we live in a World War II mentality day to day, which is, wow, you know, what if the Chinese land on the banks of Taiwan? Well, there would be a huge battle, right. <laughs> a huge battle before a, a single Chinese troop ship ever landed on the beach of Taiwan because they'd have to get there in secret, which they cannot do. And we can't do it either, to be clear. I'm not, uh, right? Yeah, well, it, that's why it's funny. Like the, uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Healy, we, we talk about this where this is the age of submarines. You know, it's not, you can't be this big, gigantic surface force because you can see that, you know, where you have to be subsurface. You have to be, you know, as you talk about being above the atmosphere where you have to, or you have to have an overwhelming force. And so can you take out the relays? So there's ways to take out the relays 
where, okay, the, the first force is, you, you know, what are you going to do first? You're going to take out your, your radar and you're going to take out your interlinks, you know, cause that's how you're going to disable or, or force them to run blind. And then once you do that, then you initiate a, a, a an aggressive boots on the ground. The problem is there's a lot of ways to see boots on the ground. So then it has to become an overwhelming force. So how do you have an overwhelming force when you can run reconnaissance so quickly? You know, one of the reasons why, you know, when you look at that or the, uh, or, you know, the, th um, terminal high altitude anti, uh, air defense. And when you look at that and what the U S was able to do, you know, we were able to put it into South Korea. And the reason why that was so important was because we utilized that in, if there, if, if a launch is initiated, every computer that's connected to Thad starts working on what is the trajectory? Where is it going to go? So you have essentially a supercomputer because you're linking so many of them together. So the closer you are to initial launch, the better you are and it sees out. So getting us into South Korea enabled us to essentially see all the way through China. So nothing can surprise us. And that was because that is, is, you know, it's, it's an air defense. It's not supposed to be a, uh, on the aggressive side, but we, we like to invent things <laughs> and we've created ways to, to turn, to use that indicate those indications and that math to create a surface to surface attack. And, and that's when you start looking at more air defense and more ways to overwhelm a, a, a position. And that's why when you look at you know, the, the, the stool or the tri-leg in terms of uh, nuclear capacity, the, the idea was you want to have more nukes than they have sites mm -hmm. because you have to overwhelm them with force. So if you know that they have a hundred air defense missiles, you need to launch 150 missiles knowing they're going to take out a hundred. So that's when you start coming into the law of numbers, you know, the law of big numbers and trying to become an overwhelming force if you can't make them run blind, which Again, it would be a mixture of all of those. Right, but nuking Taiwan would do the, would defeat the purpose of what China. Which wants. is which is why I say the boots on the ground. Like it would have to be an overwhelming force because you would need precision strikes. Because the last thing you would want is take out a foundry because you want that foundry. You know, you're not you don't want to take out that R and D site. You want that R and D site. So it would have to be precision. You know, there's been some some great uh, individuals that have that have gone through how it would be a mixture of taking out satellites. And then using an an uh, an airdrop, a a uh, you know, then an invasion force, and it would be an overwhelming in terms of air, uh, you know, with boots on the ground, and then coming through the beaches. So there's there's ways to do it. It's just there would be massive loss of life, and sometimes you have to appreciate some people don't care as much about humans than as we do. That's true, and this is the final thing I know about clock here is that even then, you'd if you took the satellite out. You would have to have amassed the troops after the satellite's taken out. Right. Because if you mass it before the satellite's out, then we know what's going on. Mm -hmm. and so, but, but the the problem is, is once you take the satellite out, we also know what's going on. And so that's my thing. Is like it's not. And, and we, I know we're going to clocks. We could debate this another time. It's <laughs> it's, it's it, my, my my larger point is this is not World War II where June six you wake up and you go oh whoa that's a bunch of ships out in the ocean we're in trouble right it's just yep. it's simply not the case in 2021 and so all of these elements um they have they would they would trigger 
now what the U.S. would do is a different story, but they would at least alert the U.S. that something was happening. So, uh, and just to, like the one thing with with World War Two, and and you look at D Day, you know, we they they were hiding, you know, they they had dummy sites, and there was there were a lot of things that worked in sure. our favor in terms of cloud cover. You know, Rommel wasn't wasn't right at there. the yeah. wasn't there. He was at a birthday party. You know, there's a lot of things that fell into line to make that a, a success. And it still was a huge cost of human life because you still need an overwhelming force. Mm -hmm. And and when you look at at Taiwan, it's the same thing. Like you could do whatever you want. You could try to hide it as much as you want, but we still know we can still assume the numbers, but it would still have to be an overwhelming force and would cause a massive loss of life. Could they get the ships to like on, on June 6th? What I'm saying is, could they even get to the point to where the ships are in the harbor, if you will? Um and that's what I'm, that's what I'm not convinced of, because all of the sea warfare that had to go on, which they were able to avoid World War II. So you'd have to get to Taiwan without the U.S. knowing and attacking. So anyways, let's yeah. save this. We'll get back to it next time. <laughs> I know we're at six o'clock here. Mark, where can people find you at? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. It's more at, at Mark FNY. I'm always happy to talk on uh, on email. So it's mrosano at c6capitalholdings.com. You know, I'm always I'm always available to talk and jam and go back and forth. And you're on YouTube? Yeah. So the YouTube channel is Primary Vision Network, uh, PVN. We have a show every Wednesday looking at the EIA energy, you know, bringing in uh, big O-Rin in the, in the third sec uh, section where I talk about physical. And then on Thursday, we have the macroeconomics and geopolitical show. Like we did a whole big thing on uh, Afghanistan, what's happening there. And then on Fridays, we have our favorite, the Primary Vision Frax Spread Count show. And then just like a quick roundup of what's happened that week. All right, Mark. Well, thank you again for coming on. We'll debate the Taiwan attack next time. <laughs> and listeners. Sounds good. <laughs> hey, also break down the Carol Basket game film. It will be out between now and your next appearance. And with listeners, uh, we'll talk to you. Uh, let's see here. This is coming on Thursday. So I guess we'll talk to you next week.